Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Alan Minsky, sitting in for Susie Weissman. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the ongoing writer's strike in the TV, film, and streaming industries with Howard Rodman. Howard is the former president of the Writers Guild of America West, which is basically the Hollywood local of the union that is, of course, on strike now. Howard is himself an accomplished TV and film writer, as well as the author of a pair of heralded novels. This is a very important strike. Corporate America is dead set on gigifying another high-profile industry, and fortunately, the workers in the union are having none of it. So stay tuned. Howard Rodman's going to summarize the story and explain all of the subtext right here on Jacobin Radio. Hello, everyone. I am Alan Minsky, and I am sitting in for Susie Weissman, and I am joined now by a dear friend of Susie's and a, uh, a great uh, presence on the Los Angeles literary and labor scene, Howard Rodman. Howard is a screenwriter, author, and professor. He is the former president of the Writers Guild of America West, a professor and former chair of the writing division of the USC School of Cinematic Arts alumnus of the Telluride Association Summer Program and an artistic director of the Sundance Institute Screening Labs. Welcome, Howard Rodman. Thank you, Alan. I'm very happy to be here. And of course, we are joined by Howard today because we once again have a writer's strike. Of course, it's concentrated in New York City, New York Metro, and out here in Los Angeles. I think 10 to 11,000 writers are on strike. The Writers Guild voted on May 1st, I believe, near unanimously to go on strike. And it seems right now that the distance between the writer's position and the studio's position is very far apart. Howard, why don't you give us the lowdown on where things stand in terms of why the writers have chosen to go out strike for the first time in 15 years? Sure. Just to sketch in some history, the 2007-2008 strike, which went on for 100 days, was about a bunch of issues, but really about one issue which was jurisdiction over what they were then calling new media and then became known as the internet and we now think of as streaming. They were maintaining that they didn't have a business model for it. It was just this experimental thing. And that if it ever made money, then we could come back and talk to them about it. And we understood that without jurisdiction over new media, over the internet, that all production and all distribution would jump to that new medium, and it would be the Wild West. We wouldn't have minimums. We wouldn't have pensions. We wouldn't have medical plans. We wouldn't have minimums. All the things that writers have fought for over the decades would simply disappear because the work in new media wouldn't be covered by the Guild. We thought that was a kind of existential crisis for us, and that's why we say that in 100 days. I remember correctly, too, it wasn't 2007, 2008 also around the peak period of what was called reality TV at the time? Yeah, the struck companies in response to not being able to air scripted programming aired what are allegedly unscripted programs, reality TV, 
as Vladimir Nabokov once said, reality is the only word that makes sense only between inverted commas. Anyway, they, they showed reality shows, but they weren't finding that that was actually filling their financial boats and they really needed scripted content. So ultimately, when they had to decide between giving us jurisdiction over the internet or losing money hand over fist and having to report very, very disappointing earnings to Wall Street, they chose to resume talks with us. A slight aside here and a very big picture question. You can even look at it in terms of the Cold War battle between the Soviet Union and the United States of America or World War II. Aren't Hollywood writers and TV and film writers always been sort of the secret hegemonic weapon of the United States of America? I mean, is there anything that more people around the world revel in than the production of these authors? Absolutely. You're right on that score. The large success of the streaming companies, and now everybody's a streamer today, Mm -hmm. is due to the global demand for scripted, dramatic content coming out of the United States. And in terms of your larger question, you know, we can get into a sidebar some other time about the CIA paying for American jazz, abstract expressionism, and the partisan review. (laughs) But I think it's always been clear that the best work coming out of the United States has been at one and the same time an inspiration to people all over the world that the world is far more beautiful than they let you see and far more terrifying than normally you're allowed to know. But it's also been a kind of beacon, as you said, look, look at the free and there's the inverted commas again, way of life. Wouldn't you like that for yourself? So there's a contradiction there. And I think we would be foolish to deny it. Yeah. And also after, okay, going back to the strike of 0708, in the period that followed, while I know The Wire and The Sopranos preceded that date, we entered into what seemed to be a new golden age of American television. That seems to have sort of begun to wear off a few years ago. How do you relate the incredible success of those serial dramas coming out of the platforms like HBO in the era of 0708? It certainly was um, a spectacular era for Hollywood writers. In what way has maybe the, the issues that informed this strike actually chipped away at what was such an artistic high point in recent U.S. Uh, basically television and became streaming platform history? Well, I think it will surprise neither you nor your listeners to know that capitalism is always uh, killing the goose that lays the golden egg for it. Late period capitalism, or as I think is more accurately after hours capitalism, is (laughs) in the business of, it's the scorpion and the frog. You know, the frog wants to cross the river. Scorpion says, can I hitch a ride with you? The frog says, no, then you'll sting me and we'll both drown. And the scorpion says, you know, why would I do that? So the frog says, okay. And scorpion hitches a rod and halfway across the river, scorpion stings the frog and they both drown. And the frog says, why did you do that? And the scorpion says, it's my character. And I think that's the companies. You know, the work of the members of the Writers Guild of America West and the Writers Guild of America East have made it unprecedented profits Mm -hmm. and has also enabled a business model far more successful 
full and far more friction-free than I think any business model capitalism has ever invented. Think about it this way, Alan. Mm -hmm. Netflix, and I'm just using them as an example, they have in their possession 230 million credit card numbers. Once a month, they press a little button and something like three billion six hundred million dollars appears magically in their bank there's no invoicing there's no showrooms there's no salesman just ping and there is three billion six hundred million dollars reliably and repeatedly in your bank account now that's pretty cool you know if what you want to do is just make a lot of money automatically and that is due to the global success of streaming content. And we could talk a lot more about that, but if you think about the old days of movie industry, you had to sell territory by territory. You had to dub or subtitle films. You had to ship cans across the globe, heavy cans of celluloid. Now, really, what you have to do is do subtitling or have a voice-to-text apparatus do subtitling for you right and then you beam it up to your satellite and beam it down and fortunately for the companies if you live in china burma india and any number of developing or soon to be developed countries you've arrived the first thing you do is you get either a cable or a satellite dish that is part of the indicia of your success and a lot of the content that goes overseas is stunningly good and really insightful and a lot of it isn't i mean i think if you look at the american feature film industry in the present day it reminds me of something william s burroughs once said about the economics of the heroin trade don't improve the product degrade the buyer and there's a lot of that too but if you we just talk about sort of the cash flow, American writers write scripted serial content. There's an enormous global appetite for it. It goes out there. People subscribe. And instead of there being a model based on any one show or any one thing or any one event, it's a model based on subscription. And as long as you keep the audience's attention, as long as they feel that in order to be a citizen of their community, they need to be abreast of what's going on in the world of streaming, as long as you give them just enough so that they forget to unsubscribe, you've got that button that you push every month and, you know, $3,600,000,000 appears. And you just, it just rolls over for most people until their credit card. They have to get a new credit card for some reason. They get by credit card front. Yeah. It just rolls over, rolls over, rolls over. And what I'm interested in, of course, is the possibility to have a prosperous middle class life where you can you know, live as a human being and not under constant precarity as a writer in, in Hollywood, maybe even do better than that. And it seems to me right now, when you look at the details of this strike, that way of living and being a writer is starting to close down in, in on people. You had apparently 33% of the writers back in 07, 08 were receiving the minimum, maybe even more recently than that. And now it's up to 50% of the writers are receiving the minimum pay they can receive. Absolutely, Alan. And, and even more than that, 
Among the community of showrunners who are sort of to writers, what A-list directors are to directors, right. 25% of them are working for minimums. And if you really sort of look at the economics of it, if you're a screenwriter, as I am, your real income adjusted for inflation has declined 14% in the last five years. If you are a writer-producer, your pay has declined 4% when you adjust for inflation. That's 20, You're making 23% less than you did a decade ago. Right. And on the screen side, when I was starting out as a screenwriter, it was pretty uniform to give you what is called a two-step deal. They hire you to do a draft and revisions. You do a draft, you get paid for it, you get a set of notes, you get paid to start your revisions, you get paid when you deliver your revisions. Now, more and more and more and more, they do what are called one-step deals, one and done. And, of course, you end up doing enormous amounts of free labor because you do your draft and the studio doesn't quite like it or wants improvements or the producer wants stuff. Of course, you're going to do that. Nobody wants to be labeled a draft counter. And if you've got only one shot at getting this thing made, you're going to do all the writing that you can in order to make them happy. You know, then wear the gold hat if that will please her. If you can jump high, jump for her too, till she cry, lover, gold-headed, high-bouncing lover, I must have you. And that's what screenwriters do. And that is, of course, the epigram, I suppose one can call it, at the top of uh, The Great Gatsby, correct? Absolutely. I'm speaking with Howard Robin, yeah. former president of the Writers Guild West, and you are also the author of two novels, Destiny Express, and the recent, much heralded, The Great Eastern. Again, Howard Rodman, I interrupted and I apologize, but I do also want to hone in on this point, too, about the mini rooms and the difference between writing rooms and mini rooms and how this is also squeezing the writers. And I also, by the way, in reading about them, feel that as these things have become more prominent, it takes away from what was going on just a few years ago. Again, after the settlement that the writers fought so intensely for in 07, 08, you have this golden period of the production of these serial dramas. And there's no doubt they were not being written in mini rooms. Okay. They were written in the classical form, but now in these recent years, you have the advent of the mini room. What is a mini room and why is it a major issue in this strike? Yeah. Let me go backwards a little bit. If you think of, those that actually made possible the streaming companies. The Shield was the show that put FX on the map. Mm -hmm. Mad Men was the show that put AMC on the map. House of Cards was the show that put Netflix on the map. Mm. All of these companies owe their origins to some really, really smart writer-producers who wrote stuff and then went to the set and produced stuff. That was the model that enabled them not just to make a lot of money, but really enabled those companies to exist in the first place. As uh, I think it was uh, Sal Caleros who once said, that's what happens when you put creators in charge. You know what happens when you put CEOs in the creative lane? Quibby. But at any rate, that model was very, very successful. And like many, many industries, once there's a successful model, they try to figure out how to put downward pressure on fixed costs and, quote-unquote, rationalize it. It's like that old joke about the venture capitalist who walks into a bodega and says, wow, imagine what this could be like 
if that guy behind the counter were out of a job. <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's like, well, we're paying all these writers to then go on set and produce. What if we do this writing production and save some money? What if instead of hiring a room of writers at their quotes or at what they're worth or what their agent can get for them, what if we hire a smaller number of writers? What if we hire them for a shorter period of time? What if we let them go before the show goes into production? Man, what an opportunity. And they've been doing that. And it's resulted in the alienation of the labor force. It's resulted in writers not being able to make their years. Just to give a little history here. My father was a television writer. When he wrote, a, a season was 39 episodes. And then there were 13 weeks of reruns in the summer. When I was coming up, uh, a season was kind of 22, 23 episodes, something like that. Now a season can be six episodes. But that can be your pay for a year. And if you're being paid by the episode, it's a shitty metric for compensation for writers. And you can be on a very successful show and work in a mini room for, you know, six weeks, seven weeks. And then you're scrambling for work again. You know, it's the gig economy. It's the uberization of writing. And one of the things we fought back against in 2017 was something we called options and exclusivity, where you could work on a six or eight episode show and they held you in first position, which means that you, in practical sense, couldn't get employment to other places because who wants to hire a writer when somebody else owns their first position? where if the show's renewed, they could just be snapped back from you. So writing went due to the company's maniacal desire to have not only massive profits, which we were giving them, but more massive profits each quarter than the quarter before, so they could show Wall Street that not only were they profitable, but they were increasingly, increasingly, increasingly Profitable quarter over quarter over quarter over quarter. Mm -hmm. Well, they did that the way they know how to do that, which is again downward choice costs. And by doing that, they worked to impoverish writers, they worked to degrade writers, and they also worked to break the larger creative machineries that had made them all this wealth in the first place. One thing that you hear, and of course I'm speaking to you from greater Los Angeles, in L.A. media and the way the mainstream media is covering the strike, and, and you know, I think not surprisingly, the media has been broadly sympathetic to the writers. But one, one of the things you do hear, and I've noted this is on a few, a few of the platforms, is the idea that maybe in 07 and 08, we thought that the people who were negotiating on behalf of the studios and the companies were no longer the classical studios and that the classical studios back in the day, however savage they were in terms of their labor negotiations, they had concern for the product to a greater degree than they did in 0708. And what you're hearing now is that the, again, permutations and changes that have happened with these eight or so corporations that make up the AMPTP, that they even care less about, you know, again, what traditionally was the idea that the studios did a portion of them want high-end product, quality product, quality films, and that this is less of a concern. And so this component of, you know, you have mini rooms, the product is going to be damaged. All these guys care about now is the bottom line. 
is that worse now than 15 years ago? Or is it always getting worse? Or is it really just as bad as it was back then? I actually think that they care about social capital as well as capital. And everybody wants to have an Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. And so when Marty Scorsese comes to Netflix and says, I've got this big, expensive movie called The Irishman, mm-hmm. they say, great, Marty, make it. Mm-hmm. So just as the theatrical release movie business has come become bifurcated between large franchise IP-driven tentpole summer movies, mm-hmm. again, don't improve the product, degrade the buyer, and then little arty things. So on streaming, there is always a desire for the, you know, prestige product. Everyone wants your Indiati 2 film. Everyone wants your Scorsese film. But at the same time, really what they're doing is trying to reverse engineer what will keep their audience from yanking their credit card from that magic machine. Before we get to the idea of how you might foresee this playing out and what kind of strategy and tactics you think that not just the union will pursue, but also for, you know, we're talking to Jacobin listeners and uh, they're going to want to know how they can support the workers and the strikers and in terms of strategies and tactics there. But before we get there, of course, the other two letters that are resonating across all of international media and relationships of the strike are the letters A and I. So I do want to declare that I'm not talking to a computer-generated Howard Rodman. I believe I'm talking to the real analog Howard Rodman. But how does AI play out on the issues between the workers and, and, the, and the bosses in this strike? And uh, what are the real life threats that exist because of AI as you see them? Yeah, AI as it presently exists is pretty clumsy. I mean, if uh, you ask it to cough up a a bio of Alan Minsky, you will find some things that are utterly true and some things that seem like science fiction because AI doesn't understand the difference between probability and certainty. I've asked it to write a screenplay in the style of Howard Rodman thinking I could get my work done on the cheap, what you get is comical. But this is AI which has been trained for, what, three months, four months, six months? The more material it has to train, the more of our work it can scrape up, the more it can be capable of doing things which are, are they creative? No. Are they as stupidly satisfying as the most uh, formulaic and stupidly satisfying things in the current marketplace? Maybe. I don't know. So what we wanted to do as writers was to say, hey, AI ain't people. So don't give us AI to rewrite because we rewrite people. We don't rewrite artificial intelligence. We had all kinds of things we wanted to debate. They would not even make a counterproposal on that, other than once a year we'll meet to talk about technology. We said we would really rather not have AI do our jobs. And they said, nah. I did something interesting. There was a tweet to that effect. And I fed it into chat GPT. And I said, hey, chat GPT, <laughs> can you respond to that tweet? And here's what the AI generated. 
It's understandable that the Writers Guild of America would express concerns about the potential impact of AI on their profession. AI has made significant strides in recent years and has been used in various capacities to assist in the creation of written content. However, writing for film and television requires a level of creativity, nuance, and storytelling that is difficult to replicate through AI alone. That's from the horse's mouth. <laughs> you know. I don't trust yeah. them. Yeah, but the fact that in the same way that in 2007, 2008, the studio said, oh, why are you focusing on the internet? That's just this sort of little technological thing over there. It's cute. It's what... Right. Now they're saying, you know, why, why are you harping on AI? And we're harping on it because if they could get rid of our jobs, they would. Now, my understanding... First of all, highly intransigent position on behalf of the companies around AI, as you just said. Same also in terms of the mini rooms. And I understand also in another working condition issue around the labor exploitation that exists between the introduction of a, a script and the final product being delivered that the Writers Guild is asking for an adjustment on. Again, complete intransigence. And so the sides seem very, very, very far apart. What do you see uh, in terms of any potential ground being closed there in terms of negotiations? And then, uh, yeah, how do you see this playing out in terms of uh, advice for people looking to join in for solidarity? And uh, again, as, a, as an expert with real life experience with these negotiations, what do the next few months look like? Yeah, I just want to emphasize before we go on that whereas the 2007-2008 strike was largely about one issue. This strike is about a whole constellation of issues which taken together, we feel create an existential threat to the ability of writers to earn a decent living. So for instance, if you write a feature and it ends up having a theatrical release, if you write a feature for a theatrical release, you get compensated a whole lot better than if it ends up being a streaming release. We think those things should be equal and equalized by raising streaming feature rates up to theatrical rates rather than a race to the bottom. The work involved in writing a feature for streaming is no less than writing a feature for theatrical release. As Karl Marx once said in a jovial mood, Regardless of fluctuations in the price of beef, the sacrifice remains constant for the ox. And in so many ways, we're trying to say, yeah, you've got these new technologies, but don't use them to pay us less for more work. Don't push it until many of our members can't afford to make their years. So... That's what's at the basis for this strike. And because there's no one single issue, resolving it really means a commitment on the part of the companies to view writing as a sustainable enterprise. And given their responses to the Writers Guild proposals, it doesn't feel like they do. It feels like they, like so many of their uh, colleagues, in Silicon Valley, who come out of a kind of um, Peter Thiel-esque libertarian philosophy, as opposed to the legacy studios, which at least came out of a kind of labor management framework, 
they would rather replace careers with gigs and they would rather replace continuity of employment with sporadic employment and they would rather replace someone has an idea they write it in a room they go into a set they produce it they work on the editing with you do this you do that you do this you do that and we're going to hire you for a shorter period of time and pay you as little as possible for each step it's sort of like assembly lines you know wanting things to arrive only at the instant of need and unless the companies are either willing to understand that writing is broken, that they've broken it, and that if they want to continue making the kind of massive profits they've been making, they got to fix it. Until they understand that, the strike will go on. I have never seen, and I've been in the Guild since 1989, I've been in leadership since 2004, although I'm not current leadership, I have been on many, many, many negotiating committees. And I've never seen my union more united. I've never mm -hmm. seen my union more resolute. Right. And I've also, interestingly enough, never seen the kind of support that we're getting. You know, when Local 399 of the Teamsters appears before a room full of 2,000 writers and says, not a fucking truck will cross a picket line, when even the Directors Guild of America sends the head of its negotiating committee to speak to a room full of writers in a situation like this. I'm feeling pretty good about the resolve of the community of writers, and I'm feeling pretty good about the fact that the community understands that in 2023, what writers are fighting for is what everyone needs to be fighting for, and that if they can beat the writers down on this, they're going to beat everybody down. So, I don't see a swift solution to this. I think what will end it eventually is simple math, which is that the cost of not having writers is greater to them than the cost of what they would have to pay to have writers. And maybe there are reputational hits and maybe there are hits on the price of their stock, which they really, really, really care about. But at the end of the day, one of my favorite American films is a movie called Body and Soul. It's a boxing movie with John Garfield. It was directed by Robert Rawson. It was written by the inimitable Abraham Lincoln Polanski. And at the end of the movie, John Garfield, who's an up-and-coming boxer, comes out of poverty, is asked to throw a fight. And they're going to give him a lot of money to throw a fight because they're betting against him. The big money's against him. And he makes a speech about his dignity. He makes a speech about ethics. And the boxing promoter says to him, there's addition, there's subtraction, the rest is conversation. And I think that's what's going on here. You know, there's addition, there's subtraction. When they add up the numbers and realize that the cost of a protracted writer's strike is greater to them than the cost of treating writers with dignity, the strike will end. Lastly, my understanding is that SAG and, well, the Directors Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA Screen Actors Guild are looking at potential work stoppages as soon as next month. How might that play into how this uh, the arc of the strike turns? I, to trot out yet another cliche, I don't have a crystal ball, 
you know, the Directors Guild is scheduled to go into its own negotiations with the AMPTP on the 10th of this month. Uh, I assume that's going to happen. I haven't heard to the contrary. Uh, SAG has its negotiations coming up. And it remains to be seen whether the intransigence of the studios with the writers extends to the their intransigence with the other guilds. And it remains to be seen whether they have the kind of DNA which would enable them to strike. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, the Writers Guild has been far less afraid to be militant, has mm -hmm. been far less afraid to strike. And on the basis of the Writers Guild's willingness to strike, the other unions have, through that delightful device of pattern bargaining, piggybacked on the gains that the writers gained by striking. Right. And, and of course, we also had the IATSE strike. Uh, it's hard to remember exactly the dates of that because the pandemic threw us all calendars into uh, in my memory of calendars into confusion. But that was, what, 18 months ago or something that the IATSE was, um, was uh, involved in a very dramatic set of negotiations that turned out largely favorable to the union. Yeah, but I think that something interesting happened there, which was that generally when leadership of a union comes out in negotiations and says, this is the deal, it's the best deal we could get, we won some things, we couldn't win everything, but we're recommending this to you, it's approved. I mean, that's been sort of traditional Hollywood union labor practice. This one was not approved by such a large majority. There was a lot of pushback, and I think it, it taught a lesson, which was that there's more militancy among the rank and file than there is among the leadership of some of these unions. And I think one of the things that I love about the community of writers and I love about the WGAW and the WGAE is there's no daylight between the militancy of the rank and file and the militancy of the leadership. The leadership of the guild is never going to cut a cruddy deal and then try to convince its members that it's got enough non-crud in it to justify voting for it. That's not how we work. That's not who we are. And that's certainly not what we're going to do in 2023. Okay. And one final question then around this country now, as I'm sure you're well aware, there is a quite a significant uptick in enthusiasm for unions and for union militancy among the general public. This undoubtedly is uh, even higher in Metro New York and in Metro Los Angeles relative to the rest of the country, uh, left progressive uh, regions of the country. Uh, how might you see that playing into this strike? And secondarily, to end with, everybody out there listening, what's your recommendation and how they can best show solidarity for the striking workers? Yeah, Alan, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, if you look at the polling, um, approval in the United States for labor unions hasn't been higher since the Roosevelt days. I mean, it's it's pretty astonishing. And if you look concretely, you have things like very, very, very pro-labor people coming out of the labor movement having seats on the Los Angeles City Council. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy that way. And I do think that the more favorable, the larger environment is toward organized labor, the easier it is for any given union to be successful in its struggle because we've got the wind at our backs now. In terms of what other people can do, that's trickier. Certainly, the Writers Guild has been posting the schedules of where it's picketing when, 
with handy little cheat sheets about here's where to park and here's where the nearest bathrooms are. Come join the writers on the line. Come walk around. Get your 10,000 steps a day in, in a very, very pleasant environment and talking to some lovely people. That's something you can do. If you are a writer not yet in the guild, what I think a lot of people are now calling BWGA, understand that a lot of people are giving up a lot of time and a lot of money to ensure your ability to earn a living. So don't cross their picket lines. Don't scab. Don't work for struck employers. Understand that this is not an opportunity for you to advance. This is an opportunity for you to join a community in an honorable way. And for everyone else, I think really the best way you can be supportive is when you pick up a newspaper and start reading those stories. And those stories are going to come about the dry cleaners, the caterers, all the damage that the writers are doing to the economy of Los Angeles and New York. Understand that it's not the writers who are doing this. Understand that at any moment, day or night, the companies could choose to negotiate in earnest. They haven't yet. But that if there are larger economic, social repercussions, and if you can't see your favorite late night TV show, that the onus for that is not the writers, but the companies that forced them to go out on strike. Well, Howard Rodman, thank you so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Howard Rodman is a screenwriter, author, and professor. He is the former president of the Writers Guild of America West, and his most recent novel is The Great Eastern. Thank you so much for joining us, Howard Rodman, and solidarity. Thank you, Alan. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss these things and really appreciate the audience that this is going to reach. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.